Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, October 11th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with today's top stories. Russia launches massive strikes at Ukraine as retaliation for bridge bombing. Iran oil workers strike and join protests. North Korea says that its missile launches were nuclear attack simulations. Germany says that its train service was sabotaged. A trial starts over the Steele dossier about Trump. Thousands march in U.S. abortion rallies. The New York City mayor declares a state of emergency over migrant arrivals. Uvalde suspends its police force over their school shooting response. Two are shot outside the home of a New York governor candidate. Israel will pay the family of a Palestinian-American who died in detention. And the NFL agrees to revise its concussion protocols. Our top story, the conflict in Ukraine as the calendar turns to day 229 of the fighting. We've got reports of casualties, electricity, and water outages as blasts rock Kiev and other Ukrainian cities. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Ukraine Forum, U.S. News & World Report, and Pravda. A barrage of Russian missiles hit Kiev and a number of other Ukrainian cities, including Lviv, Dnipro, Kharkiv, Kamelnitsky, Zhodomir, and Odessa on Monday morning, striking areas which have so far been largely unaffected by the seven-month war. Targets included thermal power plants in Kiev, Lviv, and elsewhere in the country, leading to reports of widespread electricity and water outages. While the number of civilian casualties remains unclear and is likely to rise, eight people were reported killed and 24 more were reported injured in Kyiv. Numbers for other cities were unavailable at this stage. In a video message released in the midst of the attacks, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky accused Russia of trying to destroy us and wipe us off the face of the earth. He then urged civilians in Ukraine to remain in bomb shelters as air raid sirens rang out across the country. It is widely suspected that this wave of strikes are Moscow's response to an attack on the bridge between Russia and Crimea on Saturday, which Russian President Vladimir Putin described on Sunday as a terrorist act. The Kremlin leader also alleged the attack was carried out by the Security Service of Ukraine, or SSU, the headquarters of which, located in Kyiv, is believed to be among the targets of strikes on Monday. Elsewhere, Belarusian leader Alexander Lukashenko said Belarus and Russia will deploy a joint military task force in response to what he said was an aggravation of tension on the country's western borders, according to reports on Monday. While Belarus has facilitated Russian attacks and allowed Russian troops to be stationed in its territory, it has so far not been directly involved in the conflict. Meanwhile, following a week of deadly Russian attacks on the Zaporizhia region, a further overnight strike led to the death of one civilian and injured five others. Ukrainian officials also reported that three civilians were killed and seven more were injured in the Donetsk region in the last 24 hours. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. And during this podcast, we always feature spins that emerge from the story, beginning with an anti-Russian narrative for this one. It's coming from Daily Beast. Russia has responded to the humiliating attack on the Crimean Bridge with total barbarity by striking civilian infrastructure such as power grids, universities, and children's playgrounds. Putin is clearly frustrated by the destruction of a such a strategically and symbolically important piece of infrastructure as the bridge 
and has reacted with rash brutality. TASS brings us the pro-Russia narrative. Justifiably, Russian citizens expect that the terror attack on the civilian bridge between Russia and Crimea will be met with fierce response. The country's leaders owe it to the Russian people and to the security of the nation itself to target terrorists responsible and hold the Kyiv regime to account for the loss of innocent life in the Russian Federation. And according to a nerd narrative, there is a 15% chance that Ukraine will receive a security guarantee from another country before 2024. And that's coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. Bridges are so key. We take them for granted as someone who lived in the Bay Area for a long time and your whole life revolves around bridges. If a bridge goes out, it, it kind of changes the geography of a whole area. That bridge in Crimea is not going to be fixed for years. Probably. No, it's horrible. Just ask London. It's a horrible situation. <laughs> In our next story, we take a look at protests happening in Iran. Oil workers are striking, and they defy a crackdown. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, Guardian, BBC News, Al Jazeera, NBC, and Evening Standard. On Monday, dozens of workers of Iran's vital oil and gas industry went on strike, reportedly joining for the first time anti-government protests now in the fourth week. The semi-official Tasnim News Agency, however, described the incident, including the slogan, quote, death to the dictator, as a salary dispute involving 700 workers. Meanwhile, violence erupted in the Iranian Kurdish city of Sanandaj, where gunshots and blasts were heard. The government has failed to suppress nationwide protests led by young Iranians and triggered by the death of Iranian Kurdish woman Masa Amini. According to the Norway-based NGO Iran Human Rights, at least 185 people have been killed since the unrest began, including 19 children, with state media reporting at least 20 members of Iran's security forces have died. Iranian leaders convened Saturday in Tehran to stress the need for unity to overcome hostility caused by Iran's enemies. Despite internet restrictions being in place for weeks, unrest hasn't ceased and hackers briefly hijacked the state TV feed over the weekend to broadcast a call to protest. Amini died while in police custody in mid-September after being detained in Tehran for allegedly not fully covering her hair. The Iranian legal medical organization, which is self-described as independent but is part of Iran's judicial system, reported on Friday that her death was caused not by blows to the head and limbs, but by multiple organ failures connected to an underlying disease. On Monday, the UK sanctioned Iran's so-called morality police, citing Amini's death and the subsequent protests. London accuses it of serious human rights violations and repression of women and girls. Those were the facts. Here's some more narrative spins for you. France 24 brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Amini's death and the circumstances that resulted in the tragedy have exposed how the Iranian regime treats its citizens and pushed the country's youth to its absolute limits. President Raisi has already fostered a volatile environment by failing to tackle the economic crisis and youth unemployment and repression against women through the criminalization of so-called immodest dressing has only amplified discontent. Iranians cannot blindly comply with these orders any longer. Tehran Times is giving us an establishment critical narrative for this story. Iran's riots have nothing to do with the death of Amini, but everything to do with the enemies of Iran exploiting the tragic event for the purpose of creating chaos in the country. 
This was simply the right excuse at the right time. However, Iranians can count on their government to remain firm in its opposition to meddling from Western hegemony and Israel's Zionist, re and Israel's Zionist regime. And the oracles at Metaculus are at it again with this nerd narrative, saying there's a 50% chance that Iran will cease to be an Islamic Republic by November of 2047. And now we turn to North Korea, where they claim their recent missile launches were nuclear attack simulations. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by ABC, BBC News, the Associated Press, NPR Online News, Bloomberg, and Al Jazeera. North Korea's state media reported on Monday that recent missile tests simulated the use of tactical nuclear weapons against potential South Korean and U.S. targets to check and improve its military deterrence in response to U.S.-South Korea joint naval exercises in the region. Pyongyang claims that the seven barrages of missiles recently launched were short-range weapons designed to carry tactical nuclear weapons for use on the battlefield, and that they successfully simulated hitting South Korea's military bases, ports, and airports. Kim Jong-un supervised all the tests, which reportedly included the firing of a ballistic missile under an inland reservoir in the northeast, a new ground-to-ground -ground ballistic missile that flew over Japan, and other ballistic missiles designed to hit South Korea. So far this year, the North has test-fired more than 40 missiles and adopted a new law allowing the preemptive use of its bombs under certain circumstances. This comes amid growing international concern that the country may be about to conduct its first nuclear test in five years. On Sunday, the U.S. National Security Council spokesman, John Kirby, said that Washington remains open to nuclear negotiations with Pyongyang without preconditions, but is working closely with South Korea and Japan to prepare for future North Korean provocation. Since Kim declared the North an irreversible nuclear power last month, Japan, South Korea, and the U.S. have expanded their joint naval exercises, which Pyongyang sees as rehearsals for invasion. Those are the facts, and we've got four spins that have been generated from this story, beginning with a Republican narrative coming from Red State. You can't blame Kim Jong-un for flexing North Korea's military muscle when Biden is recklessly saber-rattling with Taiwan and China. How does Kim know the U.S. won't also team up with South Korea to invade the North? Trump's relationship with and policies toward North Korea maintains stability in the Korean Peninsula. And the Democratic narrative comes from MSNBC. Kim Jong-un's geopolitical actions have been erratic, and his missile launches are destabilizing the peninsula. Instead of provoking a confrontation, the leader should take the Biden administration up on its offer to meet without preconditions and settle any of his grievances peacefully. Biden is showing strength and prudence in the region. Anti-war gives us the establishment critical narrative. The U.S. has threatened to nuke North Korea which has the right to defend itself. The U.S. should stop playing Globocop and prioritize solving its domestic problems. All right, Metaculus is here again with another nerd narrative. They're saying that in the event there's an offensive nuclear detonation anywhere in the world, there's a 33% chance that it will be deadly and it will be in North Korea by the year 2050. Now, th that's the first I've heard of a term, Globocop. I smell a new movie coming out, buddy. I don't know about you. You know, if they can get Peter Weller back for that one, that would be nice. That would be something else. In our next story, sabotage is to blame for a German rail disruption. 
And here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Reuters, France 24, and Al Jazeera. A train communications system in Germany was sabotaged on Saturday, according to authorities, forcing passenger and cargo trains to halt for around three hours across the northwest of the country. A security source said there are a few possible causes, ranging from the more common event of cable theft to a targeted attack, with Germany's transport minister saying he believed it was targeted and malicious. The specific target of the sabotage was the GSMR, a radio system used for communication on the railway, which would reportedly require, quote, certain knowledge of the rail system to damage. Countless people were stranded on railways across the north of the country, as queues rapidly backed up at mainline stations, including Berlin and Hanover, where services were delayed or canceled. News of the disruption caused alarm after the apparent sabotage of the Nord Stream gas pipelines, with NATO and the European Union subsequently stressing the importance of protecting critical infrastructure. Two diametrically opposed spins on this story. We've got the anti-Russia narrative from IM Expat. Though no direct evidence has been uncovered so far, this attack comes as tensions between Russia and the West are escalating, and Putin is known to have already used infrastructure and energy warfare. After the Nord Stream pipeline was likely sabotaged, this could very well be Putin's next move. And Breitbart gives us the pro-Russia narrative. Infrastructure cyber attacks like these have occurred many times in recent years, many of which were at the hands of far-left groups, not the Russian government. Countries like Germany and the U.S. are quick to blame Putin. However, many of these terrorist attacks have proven beneficial to the West, not the other way around. Eric, they mentioned cable theft in that article, and that's all I can think of is uh, when my Uncle Lonnie used to use his black box and, and make tapes of the uh, boxing pay-per-views. What do you think the statute of limitations is for that, Scott? Oh, I, I think I've said too much. The Steele dossier source heads to trial. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, Associated Press, NBC, and Independent. The trial of Igor Denchenko, a U.S.-based Russian lawyer charged with five counts of lying to the FBI during its investigation into alleged Trump-Russia collusion, is set to commence at the U.S. District Court of Alexandria, Virginia, on Tuesday. Denchenko, who provided key details for the so-called dossier on former President Trump to former British spy Christopher Steele, denied the charges and called for the judge to dismiss the case last week. The judge, Anthony Trenga, said government prosecutors, led by special counsel John Durham, met the burden of proof for the trial to proceed. However, he ruled that the Steele dossier's most incendiary allegations, that Trump hired prostitutes at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Moscow, couldn't be included. Prosecutors allege that when questioned by the FBI about the contents of the Steele dossier, Denchenko misled them about the credibility of his sources by failing to reveal that the original source of the information was Charles Dolan, who worked for the Hillary Clinton campaign. The prosecution is the third to be brought forward by Durham, who was appointed in 2019 to investigate possible government wrongdoing during Crossfire Hurricane, the FBI's investigation into Trump's alleged Russian collusion accusations. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Three spins have emerged. We begin with the Democratic narrative coming from Washington Post. When Durham's investigation began, Trump promised the probe would reveal corruption at a level never seen before in our country. Instead, as the saga concludes with this limited trial, Denchenko will likely be proven innocent. 
After scrutiny by the courts, Durham's claims will remain unfounded. This Trump-promised bombshell will likely be a dud as November's elections approach. Washington Examiner gives us the Republican narrative. This trial will bring to light how Democratic operatives, conspiring with the FBI and the Justice Department, employed a dirty tricks campaign in an effort to illegally try to bring down Trump. These agencies need to be overhauled before Americans can trust them again. And according to a nerd narrative, there's an 83% chance that Donald, uh, that Donald J. Trump will run for the office of president of the United States in 2024. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Does that keep going up or has that just kind of stayed the same? Uh, well, I think part of the issue is that they change what the nerd narrative is between will he run? Will he be the candidate? Will he be the nominee? Oh, yeah. So I think it might be going up, but I, I get I, we have to keep track of what's what. And uh, yeah. I think sometimes we read different ones. So so listen yeah. carefully, listeners. <laughs> That's right. In our next story, thousands march in U.S. abortion rallies. And here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, Global Times, ABC, Al Jazeera, Fox 5 DC, and Washington Post. On Saturday, thousands of protesters marched in cities across the U.S. in opposition to the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade and to urge voters to turn out in support of Democrats in the upcoming midterm elections. A crowd of mostly women chanted, quote, we won't go back, while their banners called for a, quote, feminist tsunami in a demonstration in Washington, D.C. A number of people wore green, associated with the pursuit of abortion rights, and others wore blue to symbolize the blue wave of Democratic support they, they hoped to prompt. Demonstrations in the Capitol were just one of 450 protests planned across the country, according to activist group Women's March. In Arizona, hundreds of people assembled outside the state's Capitol building. Arizona will be a crucial swing state next month and has been a legal battleground over abortion rights since the reversal of Roe. Most recently, on Friday, abortion laws passed by the state after the ruling were struck down. Several counter-protesters were also present in the marches reflecting a new animation in the debate around abortion since the Supreme Court's June ruling. On Sunday morning, Rachel Carmona, the executive director of Women's March, tweeted that women and activists across the country have never felt more urgency to turn up and speak out. We are fired up to elect more women and pro-choice candidates. The results of the midterms are expected to determine abortion access for the foreseeable future in states such as Pennsylvania and Michigan which have so far seen Democratic governors obstruct the efforts of GOP-led legislatures to pass abortion laws. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We got a Democratic narrative on this story coming from the CBC. Until a few months ago, Democratic support was catastrophic, but the injustice done by a majority conservative Supreme Court has seemed the electorate more enthusiastic than ever to support a left-wing legislative mandate. Abortion is constantly being catapulted back to the forefront in swing states, where voters know that the GOP cannot be trusted to protect the health and autonomy of women by defending reproductive rights. And as expected, there is a Republican narrative coming from Daily Mail. Rather than prioritize abortion, the Democrats would do better to focus on issues affecting working-class Americans, such as the state of the economy in the run-up to the midterms, even as Bernie Sanders recognizes. While Biden is busy attempting to distract from a record of failed leadership and incompetent policy, the GOP is putting voters' concerns, like the rising cost of living and threat of crime, at the heart of their campaign. 
people sometimes, it's kind of a cliche to say that, you know, the two sides aren't as different as they think. I don't know. From listening to those two narratives, these sides are pretty far apart. It's Oh, it's polar. Polar opposite. And news from the Big Apple as New York City's mayor declares a state of emergency over migrant arrivals. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Fox News, The Guardian, New York Times, and The New York Post. New York City Mayor Eric Adams has declared a state of emergency regarding the influx of migrants being bused to the city from Texas, saying the arrival of 17,000 migrants since April is creating a humanitarian crisis. In his public statement on Friday, the mayor said that the crisis started with violence and instability in South America and is being accelerated by American political dynamics, having previously criticized Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott for sending the immigrants. Adams also said he expects to spend at least $1 billion by the end of the year in efforts to assist the migrants. With more buses due to arrive on Sunday, his administration estimates the city will surpass the highest number of people ever in its shelter system. The practice of busing is not exclusively a Republican tactic, as the Democratic mayor of El Paso, Texas, has reportedly sent over 2,500 migrants to New York City since August and roughly 150 to Chicago. With the city having already enrolled 5,000 child migrants in schools and the mayor reportedly expecting to eventually receive a total of as many as 100,000 migrants, New York City is calling on leaders to send some of them to other cities. In addition to requesting $500 million from the White House and seeking help from New York Governor Hochul, Adams suspended city zoning laws to allow for a tent city on Randall's Island. The project is expected to house up to 500 migrants and will be run by the Office of Public Management and the Public Hospital System. Those were the facts. Thank you, Scott. And two spins beginning with the Republican narrative coming from New York Post. New York has long prided itself on being a sanctuary city. So now it's time for Mayor Adams and his Democratic colleagues to live up to their self-proclaimed status. The Democratic mayor of El Paso has also bused migrants to New York because even he knows that if the Democrats don't feel the pressure that border towns experience every day, they'll never work to fix our immigration problems. And the Democratic narrative comes from Democracy Now! The political stunts of politicians like Greg Abbott are eerily similar to the reverse freedom rides of the segregated South. In the 1960s, the racist bust black people to northern cities, and now they're busing Hispanic asylum seekers. These are two sides of the same coin, and Eric Adams is right to call it out. Eric, the hits just keep on coming. Mayor of New York's also considering declaring a state of emergency as it pertains to the uh, Mets playoff run. In our next story, new developments coming from the Uvalde school shooting where the police force has been suspended. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, NBC, Newsbud, Forbes, and Texas Tribune. The school district in Uvalde, Texas, has indefinitely suspended its entire police force in the aftermath of the school shooting at Robb Elementary School on May 24th. The statement, released on Friday by the Uvalde Consolidated Independent School District, or CISD, said it had decided to suspend all activities of the district's police department for a period of time and has requested that the Texas Department of Public Safety provide additional troopers for campus and extracurricular activities. During the suspension, current officers with the department will fill other roles in the district. 
Lieutenant Miguel Hernandez was also placed on administrative leave, and Director of Student Services Ken Mueller reportedly chose to resign. The shooting, which killed 19 children and two teachers, was the deadliest at an American school since 26 people were killed in the Sandy Hook attack in Connecticut in 2012. More than 375 local, state, and federal officers responded to the shooting, but reportedly didn't confront the shooter for more than an hour. A July Texas House Committee report found that the slow action was due to systemic failures and egregious poor decision-making. This decision to suspend the police force comes 10 days after protesters set up at the Uvalde CISD administrative building to demand the removal of officers from campus grounds until investigations into the police department's response to the shooting are complete. Thanks for those sobering facts, Eric. Narrative A on this story comes from CNN. The abhorrent decision-making of police in Uvalde was an abject failure that allowed this tragedy to unfold. In its aftermath, it quickly became evident that this failure would be carried over through a lack of accountability and transparency, and it's time to bring this to an end. The decision to suspend the police force is a step in the right direction to doing this. And Narrative B comes from Atlantic. While the police response to the school shooting was appalling, it shouldn't be allowed to overshadow the reality that this should never have happened in the first place. So-called gun rights alongside disturbingly easy access to semi-automatic weapons have gone too far and are a constant danger to American society. And Metaculus brings us another statistics-based nerd narrative. This one says there's a 1% chance that the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution will be amended or repealed before 2025. Our next story, two are shot outside of a New York governor candidate's home. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, New York Times, New York Post, CBS, and CNN. Two men were shot on Sunday afternoon outside the Long Island home of Representative Lee Zeldin, the Republican candidate for governor of New York. Zeldin's two daughters were home alone, and when they heard screaming and gunshots reportedly hid and called the police. The two 17-year-old boys from Mastic and Mastic Beach, New York, were taken to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries and are believed to have no connection to the Zeldin family, according to the Suffolk County Police Department. In an interview on Monday, Zeldin said security cameras captured three people on his property, stating they were hiding underneath his porch and moving all around the property up and down the porch. The three teenagers were reportedly walking on Zeldin Street in Shirley, New York, where they were reportedly hit by gunfire from a moving car. The third person fled the scene. This is the second violent incident surrounding Zeldin in the course of his campaign. In July, a man attempted to stab the congressman on stage at a campaign rally before others tackled him. Zeldin has made fighting rising crime a key element of his gubernatorial platform against incumbent Governor Kathy Hochul. Hochul tweeted on Sunday that she was relieved to hear the Zeldin family is safe. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story as we take a look at the spins. And a Republican narrative is the first one coming from Fox News. Crimes like these have affected countless New Yorkers in recent years thanks to the Democrats' soft-on-crime policies. The unchecked violence Zeldin has been warning about, just like Chicago, has literally reached his New York doorstep. This is a warning about the reality faced by so many innocent New Yorkers. Contrast that with the Democratic narrative coming directly from the New York State Democratic Committee. 
Lee Zeldin continues to campaign on fighting crime, but he has voted to loosen gun laws time and time again. Violent crime in New York, like what happened at his house, is often tied to guns. So why doesn't Zeldin vote for the common sense reforms that will take these weapons away from criminals? His policies are dangerous and extreme. And the nerds are saying that there's a 50% chance that there will be at least 1.38 small firearms per capita in the USA by 2029. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. The minute someone tries to stab me to get me to stop doing this podcast, I'm out of here. Like, you're going to do it yourself. <laughs> That's, I'm out. Oh, my goodness. Well, is it dark in your studio? Uh, kind of. <laughs> I got to turn, <laughs> turn some lights on in here. In our next story, Israel to pay family of Palestinian American who died in detention. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, NPR Online News, Al Jazeera, Times of Israel, and ABC. Israel's defense ministry announced on Sunday that it had reached a settlement to compensate the family of Omar Assad, a Palestinian-American man who died in January this year after being detained by Israeli troops. This marks a rare case of compensation paid to Palestinians, with Israeli authorities agreeing to pay about $141,000 to Assad's family if they in turn agreed to drop the lawsuit. His brother, however, denied the family had accepted any offer. 78-year-old Assad was reportedly stopped by Israeli troops during a military operation and found unconscious by other detained Palestinians. While the moment of his death remains unclear, he was allegedly handcuffed, blindfolded, and dragged to the ground by soldiers. According to an autopsy conducted by the Palestinian Authority and reviewed by the Israeli Defense Forces, or IDF, he died of a stress-induced heart attack brought on by allegedly being tackled, bound, gagged, and abandoned at a construction site. After receiving criticism from the U.S., the Israeli military issued a statement earlier this year deeming his death a grave incident stemming from moral failure and poor decision-making of the soldiers. Two soldiers were reassigned to non-commanding roles and a third was censured. The Biden administration has pressured Israel to conduct a thorough criminal investigation to bring those responsible to justice, with U.S. Ambassador Tom Nides meeting with the IDF Chief of Staff Aviv Kohavi to discuss the incident. Thanks, Eric, for those facts on our penultimate story tonight. Middle East Monitor brings us the pro-Palestine narrative. Omar Assad was brutally murdered during an IDF operation as part of Israel's illegal occupation of the West Bank. His family will be compensated, but only because he was a U.S. citizen and Washington pressured Israel. The truth is that human rights abuses like this one are violations of international law and daily occurrences in the Israeli-occupied Palestine. And the pro-Israel spin is courtesy of Jerusalem Post. The IDF soldiers involved in the death of Omar Assad failed in their responsibility to care for those in their custody. However, although they should have provided Assad with medical attention, it was ultimately Assad's poor health that caused his death. Assad's family is being rightfully compensated for this hardship, and Israeli authorities are responding appropriately to this tragedy. And our final story comes from the intersection of sports and medicine as the National Football League agrees to revise its concussion protocols. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, CBS, and PBS NewsHour. The NFL and NFL Players Association, or NFLPA, 
have agreed to modify the league's concussion protocol following a joint investigation into the NFL's procedures. This follows the recent and high-profile injury to the Miami Dolphins' Tua Tagovailoa. On Saturday, both organizations released a joint statement on their findings, concluding that the outcome in this case was not what was intended when the protocol was drafted. Both the NFL and NFLPA concurred to add the term ataxia to the mandatory so-called no-go symptoms. The NFL and NFLPA define ataxia as an abnormality of balance or stability, motor coordination, or dysfunctional speech caused by a neurological issue. On September 25th, Tagovailoa sustained a head injury yet was later cleared to continue the game and played again four days later, leaving the field with what appeared to be a highly serious concussion. On October 1st, the unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant who handled the case was fired. Those were the facts, and we do have three spins coming from this story, beginning with an establishment critical narrative being provided by Deseret News. No one should be surprised that the revenue-focused NFL has continuously failed to protect players against serious head injuries. With a lot of lip service despite not delivering, it's clear that the NFL is all talk and will never take the real, appropriate, and necessary medical measures to reduce the growing number of players suffering from brain damage. And the NFL provides its own pro-establishment narrative. The NFL and its players' union, the NFLPA, agreed in lockstep to revise concussion protocols in the aftermath of the scary Tagovailoa incident. Their collaboration involved a detailed investigation by both sides and the rapid update of the game day checklist. NFL players receive and deserve top-notch medical care. This shows the league and the union can work effectively to improve player safety. And lastly, we have a cynical narrative coming from FinFanatic.com. This rule change is mainly symbolic and causes odd disruptions in play. There are better non-medical changes the NFL and NFLPA can make, like expanding the active roster size and allowing two backup quarterbacks at all times. There's a high potential for this rule to be enforced haphazardly, which doesn't help the league, union, teams, or players in the end. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, October 11th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.